0: Good morning, it's great to be here. Um, I uh, have a slight confession, well, it actually, um, I say to Ben 10 minutes, but when I've done this repeatedly, no matter how fast I talk, it's 13 minutes, so I'll just get on with it. Um, I, Whenever I do a talk, it it often reflects my life, okay? So, maybe this talk today is just for me, but it has really um, made a profound shift for me, and that's why I'm so excited to share it with you, because maybe there's one person here that thinks, oh, I I could take something of that on board. On eight, um, you don't have to look it up, because I'll sort of tell the story a little bit. Um, Now... (laughs) When I was preparing this, I, uh, Gideon said to me, well, you know, what is your talk about? And I was sort of trying to think how to compress it into a sentence kind of thing. And I found myself going, Lord, I just want to tell them that prayer is about love and about being loved. Um, And so this talk today is themed around being a bride and marriage. Now, I'm using a word here that may be, uh, which I find quite old-fashioned, but I think it is more true to what I'm trying to say. The word I could have used is faithful. But the definition of faithful is to be firm, not changing in your friendship with or support for a person or organisation, or your belief in your principles. And the word I'll be using today is fidelity. And fidelity is a state, uh, the quality or state of being faithful or loyal, especially loyal to one's spouse in refraining from adultery. This talk is based on a talk that Taylor Satan uh, did at the American 24 7 conference a couple of years ago, and I'll be quoting him um, throughout the talk. He also wrote a book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, very good on prayer, and it is available through the bookshop because that's where I got my copy from. Now, if we look at John 8, we see the story of the uh, Pharisees bringing a woman to Jesus that were caught in adultery. And they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, of, uh, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? So they were saying this to Jesus to try um, and catch him out. But Jesus doesn't answer them. He just bends down and starts to write in the ground. And they keep pushing it and pushing it. And then he stands up and he says, okay, so let any one of you who is without sin throw this first stone at her. And then he just bends down and writes in the ground again. And then Jesus can just hear the feet shuffling away. And maybe there were one or two stones that gets dropped to the ground. And when there's nobody left except the woman, Jesus stands up and he says to her, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, what was impossible for this woman to know, still stunned by this sudden intrusion of love into her life, was that the real fight for her love for her life of time begun. Because it's all the ordinary, for any length of time, is that the real fight is all the ordinary days after the transcendent, memorable, breakthrough kind of day. All of us has had a woman caught in adultery moment or two somewhere in our past that has profoundly reshaped us. But it is all the days after the breakthrough day, the fidelity that we find mostly underwhelming and disenchanting. The exhilaration of our mountaintop experiences wears off after a while. Who have you been to a, a good conference? And then we find ourselves reluctantly dragging our feet after Jesus on this narrow path, mostly underwhelmed and mildly bored. You see, the real fight is the ordinary days after the extraordinary day because something all of us know by experience but are typically far too polite to ever admit is that fidelity is boring. Fidelity is rich and satisfying and it meets the deepest needs of the human soul in a way that no surface pleasures or cravings can ever touch. And fidelity is also boring most of the time. And so that leaves the average believer to live out his um, days, uh, his Christian days, with a few bad options. First, go through the motions, passionless and half pretending, or obsess about recapturing that original passion, even if I have to manufacture it, and even if I have to, um, uh, even if Sorry. Even if I have to manufacture it, or even if I know I'm manipulating myself in some way. Or the third one is to just wander away, disappointed, admitting that intimacy with Jesus has left me somewhat short of satisfied, so I'll guess I'll go and look somewhere else. Let's look at fidelity from the first book of the Bible to the very last. In Genesis 2, God asks Adam to name all the animals, and Adam finds no counterpart, is the Young's translation, or if I can use the New Testament term, no bride. God creates a woman for Adam, and, co- and Adam calls her bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, a counterpart or bride. Bride. See, fidelity is the oldest and the truest of all stories. But as we know, fidelity is boring. And in the slog of ordinary days, Adam chooses a lesser love, ripping a seam right through the whole story, destroying intimacy with God and intimacy with each other. God then starts Adam and Sarai. He takes, uh, this time, he makes a covenant not a contract with terms and conditions. His covenant is, I love you. I make the promise. All I ask of you is to accept my love. But again, fidelity is boring. And even a covenant that strong is wandered away from in the slog of ordinary days And throughout the whole description of, um, often throughout the description of the Old Testament, Israel is described as an unfaithful wife. But then God redeems the intimacy that was lost in infidelity. He places his being in the womb of a fallen woman. God becomes bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And at the Last Supper, well, Let me tell you how a marriage proposal was done in first century Israel. No dropping to the knee with a ring. First, the groom's groom's father would choose a bride. And he would go and see the bride's father. And if he agrees on the marriage, they would agree a bride price. Basically, the the groom's father would buy a bride for his son. Then all parties would come together for the betrothal ceremony. At this point, the bride price would be paid, the groom and the bride would sign a contract or a covenant signifying their agreement to marry. And then they would drink wine as a symbolic sealing of the marriage. At this point, they were betrothed, but unlike our modern times um, or our modern engagements, being betrothed meant that you were married. After they drank the wine, the groom would return to his father's house and he would either build a new house for his wife or add to his father's house more typically. And when his father approves of uh, the building and the house, sometimes it could take up to a year, he would give his son permission to go and get the bride and bring her and then they would have a wedding feast which could last up to seven days. As Jesus eats the last supper with his disciples, before he himself pays the bright price with his life, he drinks the Passover wine with them and says, This is my blood of the covenant. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26:29. This is the betrothal wine. He has gone to prepare a place for his bride. And one day, the Father will give him the go-ahead to return and bring home his bride. On that day, we will feast. The wedding of the Lamb will be prepared for us. Revelation 19:7, the last book. So the end of the story in the Bible is not an apocalypse. It is a wedding feast. Now Jesus heals that wound that was caused by infidelity. He says, "As the Father have loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love." John 15:19. But how do we remain in that love? How do we make a love so big, more than just an occasional reflection? How do we keep on choosing Jesus in all the ordinary days after the breakthrough? Prayer. Prayer is about love. Johannes Hartel, that runs a House of Prayer in Germany, says, If you can't love, you can't pray either. And learning to pray is learning to love. So going right back to the thoughts where we started, I want to quote somebody called Ronald Rollheiser that says, The single greatest obstacle of sustaining a life of prayer is simple boredom and the sense that nothing meaningful is happening. But that does not mean we are regressing in prayer. It often means the opposite. So what if boredom is a good sign and not a bad sign? And what if boring fidelity is the hidden in plain sight invitation to discover a life of prayer that Jesus so lavishly and lovingly promised us? Prayer, just like love, is easy when you are first in love and infatuated with each other. And it's easy when that love has matured into like a fine wine. But it is the in-between years when you are making a life and building a career, raising children, going to work, taking a holiday, um, falling apart, putting it back together again. Those are the long years that love has to be worked at. Those are the years when love is won or lost. And prayer, like love, comes easy at at first, after the breakthrough. It's like breathing. And it's easy for those who have matured that breakthrough into a fine love over the years of walking with God. But the years in between, those are the years when we choose or not prayer in all the ups and downs and in the variety of circumstances of our lives. Those are the years when prayer and love is won or lost. Now, to get a bit practical, Bonhoeffer famously said to a couple um, he married, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. And anybody of you who's been married a while, a container to sustain our prayer The early church had a daily rhythm of praying three times a day. It ordered their days. What order our days? You have a rhythm to your life and to your prayer life, whether you think it or not. Something is at the center of your life and everything is revolving around that. Knowing and naming that is really important because whatever is at the center of your life is shaping it into its image. There is no neutral in this world, there is intentional spiritual formation or there is unintentional spiritual formation. You are being formed right now. Everyone's life is set on an affection, a fidelity that forms them into its image. What if at the center of your day you place God who personifies love? What if you take time every day to be with God because so many people and so many things are vying for your attention, but only Jesus has your heart? What if fidelity to Jesus is everything, And the simple way to choose it is prayer. I don't want to give you rules for prayer and I don't have a formula either. I will, however, put a few links for various prayer apps on Signal if you think it will help you to pray to a more set rhythm. I only know that I want to live my life by a different set of loves. Let's Bank everything on fidelity to Jesus through prayer and find out if God is still who he says he is and who he has always revealed himself to be. If he really desires the soul's... If he really satisfies the soul's desire like nothing else can. If he really writes the best stories and has the wildest adventures if his power is made perfect in weakness, and if fidelity actually is where the real treasures are.